pop culture has two main views of humanity's future, which we often see portrayed in science fiction and projections of the future. That is utopia and dystopia. Utopia is a future in which humanity has overcome all of its problems and has built a universally great life for itself. Everything is beautiful. It is all butterflies and rainbows. The human race continues to rise to ever increasing levels of awesomeness. Utopia. And then there's dystopia, which is the complete opposite of utopia. It is a future in which the worst elements of humanity have won out. There's no peace. It's repressive and dehumanizing. It's dark and dreary, depressing, hopeless. Everything is bad. It's all crumbling into a great ash heap. Both of these views assume that there's no God or if there is a God that he has no interest in the affairs of humanity, which is not really much different. The Bible has another view of humanity's future, though, where God is present and he plays a significant role in the story. Uh, here's a short version of this third view of humanity's future. It goes like this. Humanity's future is dystopian apart from God, descending deeper and deeper into darkness and hopelessness. But God loves us, and he desires to rescue us from this dystopian fate. So his son Jesus Christ entered our world and gave his life to save us from our sin and death if we will take hold of him by faith and follow him. Well, this time of invitation is going to end one day when humanity will then have to... Humanity will finally reach this brink of self-annihilation, and then God will step in and rescue his people at the second coming of Jesus Christ and establish a truly utopian kingdom under his rule. See, the hero of the story is the Lord. It's not some great human leader with all of the answers to humanity's ills. It's not some AI that finally solves all of our problems for us. It's not going to come from some alien biologics that the Pentagon has kept hiding for decades from us. It is the Lord himself who will rescue his people and establish a new home for us. Well, we're entering into a new section of the book of Daniel today. In the first six chapters of Daniel, it gives an account of Daniel's life after being taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. It's mostly stories from his life and the lives of his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The last six chapters of the book of Daniel are accounts of visions or dreams that Daniel had, which give us a glimpse into the future of humanity. And these visions or dreams, they vary in detail, but they overlap with one another and they repeat basic points about humanity's future and the coming of God's kingdom. Now, before diving into the text this morning, why does God give us a look into the future? What is the purpose of Bible prophecy? First, Bible prophecy is not an ancient version of a science fiction novel. 
written with the intent to entertain us and to cause us to speculate and argue and divide and debate about what the future will be. Bible prophecy is given for the encouragement of God's people to give them hope. He wants His people to know that He has not forgotten them. No matter how awful things might get, that awfulness is not the end of the story. He has a future for His people, and in the end, His kingdom will be established. In our study of the apologetic, or uh, in our study of the prophetic, in our study of the prophetic dreams in the book of Daniel, we're not going to be delving into a lot of speculation about how things described in Daniel's visions line up with current events in our day. And I know that's a disappointment for some of you, because some of you enjoy that kind of thing. But, but I have made it a practice in my teaching to focus on things that we need to know for our salvation and spiritual growth, rather than doing a lot of speculating about end times prophecy. I take no issue with people who try to align Bible prophecy with current events. It's just something that I spend no time on myself and I have very little interest in. I fear the moment that I would make a statement about something happening in current events being a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, that it would become obvious to everyone that it wasn't. And then I would look like a fool. It's best that I remain a quiet observer about those things. Proverbs 17, 28 says that even fools are thought wise if they keep silent. Well, given the current state of our world, I do think that we must be very close to the time of Jesus' return. But Christians in every age are to live their life like they are in the last days and the coming of Jesus is soon. Well, let's flip over to Daniel chapter 7. And we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. We met Belshazzar back in Daniel chapter 5, you might remember. He is that arrogant, foolish co-king of Babylon to whom God had given that message through a mysterious handwriting on the wall. The message to Belshazzar was, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting, and your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The vision that Daniel records for us here in chapter 7 came to him during the first year of Belshazzar's reign, which was about 14 years before the fall of the Babylonian Empire and the events that took place in Daniel chapter 5. So we're actually jumping back in time a little bit in Daniel 7, uh, chronologically in Daniel's life. This vision of Daniel in chapter 7, has the same basic meaning as the dream given to Nebuchadnezzar back in Daniel chapter 2. And we'll note parallels as we go along. It says in, chapter, in verse 2, it says, Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. 
winds of heaven. That word winds can also be translated spirits. It says the great sea, and this represents the mass of humanity, the churning of the great sea. It refers to the strife and the agitation and the fighting within the world of humanity for dominance and power. The earth is in a continual state of unrest and strife and turmoil. It doesn't really take much imagination for us to see the world at large resembling a great churning sea of strife and unrest and frustration and anger. And out of this great sea of turmoil, there arises four great beasts, which represent kings or kingdoms of humanity. In verse 17, it tells us that, that, these, tells us that these beasts represent kings and kingdoms. It says there in verse 17, the four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. Well, these are the same four kingdoms that are also represented in the statue of Nebuchadnezzar in his dream in Daniel chapter 2. Verse 4 says, The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. This is the Babylonian Empire, which was represented by the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. The lion was often used by the Babylonians themselves to represent them. The lion is a majestic animal, powerful and dangerous, but it's also regal. And this is an apt description of the ancient Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar. The plucking off of the wings from the beast is believed to refer to the period of humbling that Nebuchadnezzar went through, which is described in Daniel chapter 4. You might remember that he had this period of insanity in which he thought he was an animal, as God humbled him because of his pride, and his sanity then returned to him when he finally acknowledged the Most High God. The giving of a mind or heart of a man to the beast refers to Nebuchadnezzar after his humbling, being given a new mind and heart. Nebuchadnezzar had an encounter with the true and living God, which profoundly changed his life. The same is true for every person who has a real encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are changed from a beast to a man or a woman, aren't we? I want to pause here for just a moment and make the observation that we have the benefit of hindsight for understanding the meaning of this part of Daniel's dream. We know the story of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, which enables us to see these parallels and the meaning. If, if we didn't have that story of what happened to Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar, it would be very difficult for us to know what it is meant by the wings of this beast being torn off, for example. So imagine then how difficult it is for us to know the meanings of many elements and details of visions and prophecies which have yet to be fulfilled. We should keep that in mind when we are trying to interpret prophecies that are not yet fulfilled. A good measure of humility should always be maintained. Verse 5 
says, and there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. This is the Medo-Persian Empire, which was represented by the chest of silver in the statue of Daniel chapter 2. The bear symbolized the great size of this empire and its fierceness in battle. The Medo-Persian Empire was ferocious and powerful, but like a bear compared to a lion, it didn't have the same class and refinement of the Babylonians. This bear, it says, is raised up on one of its sides, and it's believed that that refers to this lopsided union of the Medes and the Persians. The Persians would eventually absorb the Medes into their own empire, being the more powerful of the two of them. These three ribs in the bear's mouth refer to beasts or kingdoms that this beast has devoured. The Medo-Persian Empire was made up of three previous kingdoms, the Medea, Persia, and Babylon. Some believe that it might also refer to the three kingdoms that it conquered, which was Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. The instructions given to get up and eat your fill of flesh probably refers to the nations and people that this Medo-Persian Empire devoured over the course of its 200-year history. Then verse 6, it says, After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, who, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. This is the Greek Empire, which began with the conquest of Alexander the Great. This kingdom was represented by the thighs of bronze on the statue in Daniel chapter 2. In contrast to the lion, the leopard is less majestic, but it's swifter and more cunning as a hunter. And this was characteristic of Alexander the Great's military tactics. He would strike fast and hard, quickly overtaking and conquering his opponent. The four wings on this beast further highlight the speed and the agility of this beast in battle. In just 10 short years, Alexander the Great had invaded and conquered the entire Medo-Persian Empire with the mountains that border India being the only thing that finally stopped his eastward advance. The four heads refer to the four generals of Alexander's army who would split the empire up into four parts following Alexander's death. This is also predicted and explained later in Daniel chapter 8, verse 21 and 22. Verse 7, it says, After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. This beast was terrifying and very powerful, unlike the other beasts. Daniel doesn't even liken this beast to a known animal like he does with the first three beasts. This is the Roman Empire, which was represented by the legs of iron on the statue in Daniel chapter 2. The Roman Empire 
considered the most powerful of all of the human empires grew continuously for some 400 years and it lasted in one form or another for an unprecedented 1,700 years. Historians consider it to have lasted about 500 years as a world-dominating empire. The Romans were ruthless as conquerors, devouring and breaking to pieces and trampling underfoot all that opposed them. So this description is very apt for that particular uh, empire. Up to this point, in, there is fairly wide agreement among Bible scholars about the meanings of the various elements of Daniel's vision that he's uh, recounting here. When we get to the ten horns mentioned at the end of this verse and the things that follow, though, opinions begin to diverge about what things represent. Now, I'm going to present a very basic interpretation of these things without getting into a lot of detail. There are other views about these things, but we're not going to take time to go into those. If you're interested, that's something that you can do on your own time, in your own study. There's lots of books and movies and whatever's out there for those who want to dig into that kind of stuff. What I want to impress upon us at this point is the importance of maintaining the unity of us in Christ. Speculation about end times prophecies is not something for us to divide over. It's a minor rather than a major in the Christian faith. Verse 8 says, While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. These ten horns represent the same thing that the ten toes of the image of Daniel's uh, image in uh, Daniel chapter 2 represent, or the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. There are, there are ten kings or kingdoms that rise up out of this fourth beast, the Roman Empire. Verse 24 explains it like this. It says, the ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings, and this is the little horn talked about here. The little horn that comes up and displaces three of these other horns is a ruler who takes over three of these other kingdoms and then rules over all of the horns. The little horn or the represents this last ruler of the terrible beast of human government. This is the eyes on this horn. They probably symbolize the intelligence of this ruler and his pervasive insight into the affairs of his subjects. Makes me think of George Orwell's novel, 1984, and that famous phrase, Big Brother is Watching You. The mouth that spoke boastfully. It symbolizes the blasphemous things that this ruler says and does against God. Daniel 11.36 describes it this way. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. 
He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. This little horn has come to be known by a more familiar term, the Antichrist. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Obviously, this is God's judgment of human rule that's being described. The court was seated and the books were opened. The Ancient of Days refers to the eternal God. The clothing, white as snow, symbolizes his purity and his holiness. Hair, white like pure wool, it symbolizes his great age and wisdom. These wheels on the throne... That was a feature seen on the thrones of many ancient kings, making their throne look like a chariot. The most feared of war machines of the ancient world, the wheels conveyed the idea of movement, of swiftness in battle, of power to overcome enemies. Ezekiel 1 gives a similar description of the throne of God. It says, thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And an uncountable number were among his royal court. And then verse 11, it says, Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking, that little horn that, with the eyes and the mouth that's speaking and is boasting. It says, I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. The, the little horn is pictured here, still speaking boastful words right up to the moment that God judges and destroys him. And it certainly gives us a clear picture of his arrogance and his boastful pride. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So now we have the final kingdom, the kingdom of God, with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as ruler over all nations and peoples, all worshiping him. And this is similar to the way the dream of Nebuchadnezzar ends in Daniel chapter 2. You might remember there was a rock uncut by human hands that came and struck the great statue in its feet, causing it to crumble and fall to pieces. And the rock then grew into this great mountain that filled the whole earth. And here the Son of Man is pictured coming in the clouds. 
that term, son of man, it was Jesus's favorite way of referring to himself. You might remember that in the Gospels, that he would always refer to himself as the son of man. 15, it says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the vision that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four beasts, or the four great beasts, are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. So an explanation of the vision is now given to Daniel by one of the beings that is present there near him. Uh, one of the angels, Gabriel, is identified later in one of his uh, visions in a latter chapter, and maybe this is Dan or Gabriel here too. These beasts are four kings who will rule, and we've just talked about that, and you know, I've kind of given you some of the interpretation that we'll be reading about here as we went through this dream to kind of help us follow it as we moved along here. But it says, then, then God, it says he, he summarized this whole thing, and he says, well, you know, these are beasts, our four kings who are going to rule. But then God is going to establish his own kingdom for his people that will last forever. It says, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. I just want to say, what a beautiful promise given to the Lord's people. Corrupt and flawed human rule will be replaced by the perfect rule of Jesus Christ, providing a home for God's people forever and ever. And this is really the summary of this. And now it delves into some of the details and says, Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom." So we have this further description of the fourth beast and the horns that come from it. Daniel gives some more details that he didn't include in uh, the first description that we read in verses 7 through 12. He continues in 23 with more. He says, he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress His holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into His hands for a time, times, and half a time. So we learn here that this little horn 
the final king of human government, will speak against the Most High, blaspheming God. He will oppress the Lord's holy people, persecuting them, trying to destroy them. It says he will seek to set up and establish his own religious system and laws for everyone to follow. The holy people of God will be delivered into his hand, it says, for a time, times, and half a time, or for three and a half years. And we get that, that time is one, times is two, and then half a time, so one plus two plus a half is three and a half, if you are following the math on that. <laughs> In other words, they will suffer under his tyranny of violence against them for that period of time before the Lord puts an end to him and what he's doing. 26, but the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. Verse 27 is interesting. It says that the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all of the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. The Lord's people will reign with him. What an, ast an astonishing thought. We're told the same thing in other places too. Uh, Many passages in the New Testament in particular talk about us reigning with Jesus Christ. In Matthew 5, 5, Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. And here we see that coming to pass literally in Daniel's vision. And then finally, verse 28, it says, this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale but I kept the matter to myself. It says Daniel was deeply troubled and his face turned pale as he considered this vision, the, the terrible suffering that would be coming upon so many as kingdom destroys, kingdom destroys, kingdom destroys, kingdom, and on and on, and the trampling and the crushing of countless people in the process, and then this final madman king who will seek to overthrow everything and destroy the people of God. It was all very disturbing for Daniel to see. But Daniel is also a person of hope in the saving hand of the Lord. And that's the same kind of attitude that we are to have about the future as believers we grieve over the suffering that humanity inflicts on itself, but we are also hopeful ultimately, knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming to save our world before humanity wipes itself completely out. Humanity hopes for a utopia. Humanity fears a dystopia. In Jesus Christ, Humanity's hopes can be fulfilled and fears can be erased. Billy Graham said a number of years ago, Bible teaching about the second coming of Christ was thought of as doomsday preaching. 
But not anymore, he said. It's the only ray of hope that shines as an ever-brightening beam in a darkening world. And that is truer today than it was in his day for sure. We look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ, not as a doomsday moment, but as a bright ray of hope in a darkening world. And we can say, come, Lord Jesus.